I was very surprised by the response we received uh, in regards to the podcast. I didn't, it was validating for me and made me feel that maybe I'm a little interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And it definitely did make me feel less alone in, in that, um, in this struggle with, you know, an existential crisis, I guess. This is Erica Henry, and you're listening to the Holy District Podcast. Well, we're coming to the end of our Eternal Oblivion series, and as you know, we've been talking about a question and response opportunity to wrap up the series. And so here we are in part one of two-part Q&R with Emily Lake, my sister, and myself. We're going to take on just two or three thoughts or questions that you all shared, and also Emily is going to kind of kick us off with her, yeah, her thoughts about all of the feedback that she got from you all throughout this series so far. I'll just add that I'm really grateful for all of the wonderful and thoughtful engagement that we've had this series. And I've just really enjoyed as much as you can such a difficult conversation with beloved people, with my sister, with you all. So thanks for being with us as we are wading through these waters and for all of your great insight. I hope you see as we continue with this episode how much they really meant to me and to my sister and how our thinking is shifting because of your engagement. Here we go. Something that was very helpful for me, which I try to frame a lot with myself, but I get lost in it. Several people that actually commented um, on social media were people that I wouldn't have thought struggle. So interesting. And I mean, in general, struggle. Mm. So that's almost, I would say that's faulty on my part to feel like just because they have these highlight reels that I envy And it seems like life isn't messy for them. It doesn't mean that it isn't. Right. Some of the feedback that I really, really enjoyed um, personally were women that I've known and grown up with and grown up with on social media, because that's kind of a thing we do now. We know people, but we don't know people. Right. And they're moms and they have children my age and I've watched them grow up and I've watched their children grow and I've seen what their opinions are and they're kind of watched their lives play out. And to hear that, you know, they were like captivated by it. Like they just wanted it to to keep listening or, Mm -hmm. or even that they had to chew on it, you know, they had to come back to it. Um, 
I know that I discussed with you that was heavier for me because I, I didn't want to open any can of worms to where someone had to, had to set something down that I was talking about, but I don't want to call it necessary. It did seem like they did want to listen. They just needed to process things along the way. And I thought that was very interesting. And I really liked that, that they let us know that they, they did take the time to comment their concerns and their opinions. And it, it did make me feel, um, not so crazy. That's, that's so important. And I think you're just naming now actually our goal in this question and response podcast, because we don't have a goal of answering or thinking that you and I have like some vantage point, (laughs) um, on this existential question that our friends and the people who've been listening don't already have, but, um, that we would have the ability now to respond to some people who reached out to you and reach out to me in the same way of saying like, you're not crazy and we hear you and we understand you and and kind of here's, here's what your comment or your thought or your question brought up in us uh, and to offer that back to them almost as a gift of just being together in this. Yes. And I also want to say, and I'm thankful for those that have listened and have commented um, and those that have reached out, something that I thought was very cool and just gracious was the internet can be very cruel. Yes. And there wasn't a lot of, I don't even think there was at all. There was no, well, this is how it is uh, religiously, yeah. or I don't agree with this at all. There was just a lot of, um, hey, you're not alone. I'm in this too. And that's not the norm. And uh, that's not the temperament in social media right now. So that's really neat that we had, we had some really good feedback and then people did get vulnerable with us. um, You know, if it was a message or otherwise. So that's, that's really cool. And I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. Thanks to you listeners, because we have been doing this experiment together for the last yeah. four weeks. And, um, you know, Emily, you and I had this hunch that maybe if you and I could take a step together and try to model something that we experience in our relationship, because we love and respect one another, we can maybe try to model it for anyone who might listen to the podcast, that space could get a little bit bigger. And yeah. that's what we've experienced. And we didn't know, you know, if it was going to work you opened yourself up to the potential of some, you know, the potential of pain for, from the religious community. If, if people in the religious community weren't willing to hold space for the place that you're in. And I'm delighted, you know, I'm, I'm really delighted that you didn't experience more trauma and more pain from sharing, you know, from, from the place that you're at. And, and then, like you said, we, we've had some people open up and share very vulnerably with us and so do you want to get us started in that vein by sharing the, um, the comment or the thought that your friend reached out with you that he wanted us to discuss in this Q&R podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So I had a friend reach out to me uh, privately 
And this friend is very, very important to me. They have been there for me. Um, I would say since I was a teenager and I didn't expect them to reach out to me on this subject, but I, I'm very glad that they did because they, they mean a lot to me and I really do want to delve into their question and, and, and their feelings um, because they are so valid and, and I can really see how people struggle with such an issue. Uh, I am going to keep those that I talk about. I'm going to keep their names private uh, just to respect that vulnerability that they've had with me. It's just like I go through the same motions every day. I get up, I go to work, I get home just to do it all over again. I never go out with friends because they're either busy or I can't get to them. I don't have a significant other and odds, odds are against me that I'll never find one, which is a whole other can of worms. I haven't taken a vacation in now two years. I just feel like I am in a loop that won't end until I die. I'm kind of clinging on to hope that when I get my house, that it will pull me out of the slump. But then the demon in my head just peeks out and says, but what if it doesn't and you're just going to be miserable, but in a new location. It all just makes me feel completely pointless. I'm just going through life until I die and then poof, I'll be forgotten. Like I didn't even exist. Like my life ultimately means absolutely nothing. And even when I get home, you know, I like to play games, but this depression has made it so I don't even have the energy to play. I'll start, but most of the time I'll play for like 15 minutes and then just not feel like I want to play anymore. I just don't find enjoyment in things that I love anymore. To quote the first line in the song, Animals by Architects, I do my best, but everything feels ominous. Not feeling blessed, quite the opposite. This shouldn't feel so monotonous. It never rains, but it pours. I'm just, I'm just feeling right now and listening to, to that response. I am, um, I'm in awe of the courage to even put to words the kind of hurt and, and the kind of struggle that your friend is battling, you know, day in and day out. Like I'm, I'm really, I'm impressed at that kind of bravery. Yeah, I mean, they said it so eloquently, and I don't think that they realize, and maybe I didn't realize, 
when we first started this podcast, I talked about larger than life people like Martin Luther King that if we're just here and gone, like what was it for anyways? Right. Mm-hmm. But I also meant it for people like my friend, you know, just the, the hardships of living life. And I just heard so much in that message. Um, I just kind of heard like, why? Mm. And I'm trying not to um, cry about this. I don't know how you could this is where that kind of like, if there is a being, mm-hmm. like th- throw, like throw them a bone. Yeah. Um, give them something relational. Yeah. I think they deserve the best partner. And I think they deserve to really experience life. And I know how hard depression is. Um, so, and I, I, I actually, I was just so surprised that they responded to this and with such truth mm. that, that just, that is transparency and vulnerability to me. And, um, I just want to make sure like we honor that because I I get it. Why? Yeah. You, you just named something that I noticed as I was listening to this response, you said relational. And I feel like this person is articulating, I believe something that all of us humans intuit, which is outside of relationships, life does feel meaningless. Um, For a lot of us do try the approach of living for ourselves or living for things and possessions and living for status or power or whatever it may be. And I think we all end up finding out that that is, those things are empty. I mean, I think that's why the, you know, demographic with the highest rate of suicide are like white males in their fifties and sixties. Um, you, you get the whole world and you find out for what, you know, what is this? I'm still not happy. I'm still not fulfilled. I still don't, I don't get why I'm here. I don't need to be here. And, you know, for this, for this person, I'm, you know, I'm just, he's, he's not chasing after all of that. (laughs) And, and he's, but he's also not experiencing the kind of relationship that, that he so yearns for. And I guess I just want to say it's such a natural and understandable thing to want. I think we're made for that. I think we evolved because we have 
have relationships and we find safety and security within our communities or we're supposed to, you know, be able to. And that's why human beings have been able to survive, you know, up until this point and, and the history of our planet. And yet here he is in such a, it's been such a hard couple of years. It's been such an isolating few years. And even those of those of us who have partners or spouses or children, we're at our wits end because we were locked up inside our houses for, you know, God knows how long. And here this person is saying, I've just been by myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that is, I just, I am, that breaks my heart because what a heavy burden to bear. And, and I don't think any of us were meant to bear that burden alone. And to your point, I think that to be someone who is a part of a faith tradition that says that God in God's essence is relationship. You know, I'm a Trinitarian Christian, so I believe that God is three persons in one. Um, so God, the, the ground of being itself is a relationship and our faith then should reflect that. And, um, people of faith should care about people who are lonely and who are isolated from community and find our way to them. And like you just said, if there really is a being out there, then, then why wouldn't that being help him? <laughs> um, I think that's super legitimate. And I think it's a huge critique of the Christianity that we've been discussing um, throughout this whole podcast. Yeah. And I think it's, I would say it has to be frustrating. I've experienced it, you know, in, in the Christian community, say they feel that sense of him wanting to belong somewhere, but then also knowing there's a tag attached to it. Yeah. And so do you actually like me? Or do you like me because you want me to become what you are? Right. Um, the, the need to be liked and wanted and needed for you and to, for someone to get to experience you and the pandemic, like you said, it's been a trying few years and I felt very isolated and alone. Um, I, I I remember talking with friends that were single, and the the need for a touch, yeah, be it a human or your pet, like, and I didn't realize because I was being needed too, too much, much, yeah, yeah, by my children, and I. And that's okay. That's okay that I was frustrated. But I remember thinking like, I, I am, I am thankful that I have this purpose every day because I, I would, and I was depressed, but I, I would have been, I'm like an active depressive person. Like I, I have to feed my children. I have to bathe them, you know? So I had to get out of bed. Um, I just kept thinking um, in his question of the, I kept seeing this image of like 
you go to work and it's boring, you know, like you work at a factory or you work at an office or whatever, and you go to work and you, and you come home and you get to just gripe to your significant other about the mundane and, and, and banter or even arguments and or just the house is too loud or whatever, but it's, but it's your family and it's where you fit. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he just, he falls into that narrative for me of like, why do some get so much and so many get so very little? Mm. Yeah, I maybe a related thought to that as you were reading his response and he was talking about, I want to hang out with my friends, but they're too busy. And they're, um, you know, why do we work like there? I was, it makes me want to dissect and analyze and evaluate our cultural values and what it means to be an American and what it means to have a life that's flourishing because we're the script that we're handed is, you know, you grow up, you get a job, your job is how you make money. Your money is how you have stuff. Your money is how you are, you know, a valuable member to society and, you know, work, work, work and hustle, hustle, hustle. And do you have the right things? Do you have a big enough house? Do you, are you known? Are you esteemed? Like there are all these things that were kind of said, like, this is what it means to live. And I, you know, so you layer on, will I be remembered? Yes. Yeah. And so there's, there's that, then you layer on just like our materialistic and consumeristic society, like we're groomed to work so we can make money so we can spend money so that our society can flourish and, and who's flourishing, not, not this person who's working to live and then saying, what's the purpose of living? Because all my friends are so busy that we can't even spend time together. Mm -hmm. What kind of world are we shaping? And are we building for our, our communities where we're just working to live and then life isn't worth living because we can't even be in the kinds of relationships that actually bring us the kind of value, bring us the kind of connection that makes us want to wake up in the morning, makes us yeah. want to get out of bed in the morning. Um, I, I also, I also think, but maybe we would have to talk to someone in like our parents' generation, something fell off when social media was, was made. Um, in, in where I live, there isn't the only sense of community that you're going to get is at church or at a bar. Yeah. After you reach adulthood, if you have kids, there's ball games, you know, there's birthday parties, but as an adult, where you get fun, vivacious, vulnerability, transparency, the, just the, the human collective is at church or at a bar. In for me, it's in my, in my small town world. That's how it has been for me as an adult. What if neither of those work for you? Right. I remember neighbors coming and knocking on our door and having a pie or, you know, sitting out on the porch and it wasn't anything for you to go walk over there and talk to them. Our generation, and I am one of them. I don't want 
I don't want someone knocking on my door. I'll literally hide sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to deal with you today. There's, there's this thing of like, we're so overly connected in social media that we don't want to connect in person. And I think so much could be healed in our, in our spirits and in our conscience, like just like who we are. If we, if we could just sit at a table together again, not just with those we're familiar with, you know? And I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that, but something shifted and and I know why, but I don't like it. And I wish, I wish we could stop thinking that we know people there and getting to know them in person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think you just named it. You said, I, I don't want to do that. Like there's a part of you that says, this is what I need. And this is what our, we need in our community. And at the same time, I've been conditioned to not, to think I don't want that and to think that it's not going to be a good thing. And so, you know, I think if we well, are- and that's the other thing, like I, I noticed myself saying last time on the podcast is I can be vulnerable on the internet. And I really digested that last time. You know why I can be vulnerable? Because I can turn it off. I can turn Facebook off. But if I'm sitting in front of you and you don't accept what I say, at least, and I'm like, wow, I'm sorry you went through that. Or like, oh yeah, me too. I will go home and think about it. Mm. And it'll just fester. So like, we don't want to, we can do it on Facebook because we can shut it off. Yeah. But in person, it's like, well, what do I talk to them about? Like, I don't even know what to say. What if they don't leave by the time that I want them to leave? Or what if they don't like me? Or, you know, all those things that like, as humans, we do need to experience or like we at least experience before social media. It seems like we just, yeah, we don't want to get out of our comfort zone and we don't have to when we have social media. It's such a, it's such a scary place to really inhabit and I think we are all very, we're much more fragile than we want to be and our need for acceptance and acceptance is so low in supply in our culture. So, you know, we find, we create places that feel safe and what that ends up doing is boxing us like our true selves. We're afraid to expose our true selves to pe- to other people because what might be done to us and what harm we might incur in the process. The really sad thing though, is that then no one ever really experiences flesh to flesh, like eye to eye who I really am. So the end of the day, the person I present could be loved by 15,000 people on TikTok, but I could still go to sleep at night every night saying, but, but if they knew who I really was, they really wouldn't like me. Yes. And I think that is the, um, that's the thing that we need an antidote to in our, in our culture. And I think that takes, you know, courageous people being vulnerable in the flesh, um, and, and loving, you know, actually loving each other. I just, I pulled up this, um, quote from a, um, philosopher, uh, pastor theologian, um, named Patrick Otuma. And he said, we need to be muscular 
and our capacity to use plain words of grace in public. And um, I'll kind of interpret that just because it is, it's kind of a dense, it's a simple, but it's a dense statement. He is talking about how if we're actually going to grow in our sense of belonging as part of the human family, we need to actually strengthen our ability to just speak in a gracious and kind way to each other in front of each other about each other. And um, it takes courage to do that. And it's not something that is modeled for us a lot. And once again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast with you, because if we if we don't ever feel like we can show up as our whole selves and our true selves in the real world, we are going to continue to be isolated and disconnected and lonely and not experience the kind of love that, that I think makes life feel like it's worth living. Yeah. And while you were reading that quote, um, this doesn't really play into his question. Um, I, I know that I'm very guilty of what you just said. Mm. I got comfortable behind my mask and I wanted to go into a store. I wanted to do what I needed to do. I don't want you to look at me. I don't want you to say anything to me. I want you to stay six feet away. I think all of you are idiots. I think I, I don't like any of you. I don't think you add anything. And I, I, I was, it was, it was just like, get in, get out. But everything was kind of negative mm. in my mind. I always, I would smile. Or you could I would do like the grin, but like you no, know, but like hopefully they saw my eyebrows raised. You know, like I, I would do that yeah. stuff. Yeah. But when I don't, I don't know. Are you guys unmasked? In, yeah. in okay. So when the unmasking started, I did feel like, oh man, like people got to look at my face again, and I don't want to always grin and stuff. And then I started pushing myself, like, because I could feel that negative energy I was putting off. And I started talking to people at the gas station and stuff. And I was like, wow, that has not been me for the last couple of years, but it used to be. Yeah. And I want to say this story because I think it's important in regards to that quote. I was at TJ Maxx <laughs> and I was with Lennon and I was trying to find a shirt for work and Lennon only, Lennon only wanted to get to the toy aisle. Of course. She wasn't being the nicest about it. Gotcha. Okay. Can we just go look at the toys? Can we just go look at the toys? It wasn't probably said that nicely. Okay. It was, I was getting to a point where I'm literally hot in the store. I'm trying to, enforce a boundary with my kid to understand that I, I needed something this time and you need to wait while also wanting to just be like, stop it. Or we're not going, we're right. not going to go with the toys if you don't stop. Right. And so, you know, we're kind of having this little wrestle, uh, with our, with, you know, as my daughter, with me and my daughter and we go to check out, there's only one person checking everyone out. And this mom is with her daughter and mom, I think might be 10 years older than me. And her daughter is, I think, going into teenage dumb and mom gave her 
and I'm hearing this conversation. They're right in front of me. Mom, I'm guessing it was an allowance. And she pulled this money out and wanted her to learn how to purchase something, what the meaning of it was, walk up to the person, put the items that you picked out down, yada, yada, yada. And I don't know if you've been to TJ Maxx, but they put all this stuff around to try and make you buy it last minute. And the mom's like, oh, look at those chips. Let's get dad those chips. I bet he'll like those. That's his favorite flavor. And she grabs them and puts them into her cart. While daughter has her own cart, mom has her cart. And then the daughter says, well, I want to grab these. And the mom was like, you've already spent your budget. So we're not going to get those. And this girl, I mean, it was like a full-fledged 12-year-old tantrum. And it was very embarrassing. And it was, you're going to get him that, but you're not going to get me this. And like, I mean, just very, it's, I felt, I don't think that she knew how degrading it was, but as a mother, I felt her mom. Hmm. But I also had this sense of like, handle your kid. Uh, Oh my gosh. Like this is embarrassing. hmm. And the line was getting longer because there's only one person at checkout and the girl goes to check out. And it was just, there was a lot of, it was belligerent the way that the, the daughter was having a very loud reaction towards her mom. And I looked behind me and I saw people shaking their head and you could kind of tell it was that sense of like, that girl should have been spanked. You shouldn't let her get anything. Everyone was like muttering under their breath, all the judgment, all the judgment. And Lennon said, do you see what that girl is doing? And I, and that mom, the entire time she stays calm, but you can tell she's at her wit's end, but she stays with it. And she's like, this is what you're buying. If you want to put something back and this girl's yelling at her, you know, if you want to put something back and get those chips, you can do that. But this money is for you to spend, you know, these are your choices. And she, she basically walks through all this and her face is red and she's embarrassed. And the daughter pays and just walks straight to the exit, but she's 13. So she has to wait for mom because she can't drive a car. <laughs> she sits there with her little cart. She's all ticked and the mom's paying. And you can see that she's like shaking. She's like, she feels bad that it's taken this long to pay. And for the first time in like a long time, I was like, I just felt like she needed affirmed. Cause I could just, I could just envision her going home mm-hmm. and feeling so defeated. And I bet she was so excited to take her kid out to get things that she wanted with her own money. So I pat her, I, I touched on the back and I said, I hope it's okay that I like, cause I, you know, nowadays you don't know if you can You're touch six in their bubble. Yeah. I touched her on the back and I was like, I said, you're doing a really good job, mom. Mm-hmm. And she like looked up at me so surprised. And she said, she was like, thank you. This has been the hardest, hardest year parent mm-hmm. of my life. And I said, you, you're doing it right. I was like, the way that you're reacting, she's, she's really going to thank you for it later. 
And um, she looked at me and she was like, thank you. And she's like, enjoy this age. She points at my kid. Mm-hmm. When we walked out, Lyndon said to me, can you believe she was acting like that? And I said, can you relate to that little girl at all? You, you just kind of wouldn't, wouldn't let me, you know, just grab a shirt in the store. And I said, that mom is just trying to be good and, and do good by her daughter. And Lennon was like, yeah, you're right. And I just, I'm not trying to like, oh, Emily, you're so great. It was like, it just broke my heart thinking of her going home and it continuing and her just being like, dang. And then maybe her husband being like, well, you should have just put it all back. She's ungrateful. And she's this, and she's that. And the mom is just like, well, the lesson that I was trying to teach was lost, you know? And so like, I really, after that have been trying really hard to like put myself out there because I guess what I'm alluding to is we need each other. Yes. And when I've had those hard moments with my kids, especially when they were younger in those tantrums, I heard a lot of like, if you spank them, they won't do that. And just like them putting things on the belt and I'm just letting them grab the candy because I just want to get home and hearing this negative commentary and it sticks with you. Mm -hmm. And, and I got so comfortable hiding behind a mask that I, I dehumanized everybody. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just adding, adding grace back into our life now that we are exposed again <laughs> and we are going to have to be, uh, we're going to be in places again with people mm-hmm. and, and maybe that looks even more graceful because we know that we all went through a hard time. Everyone was hit with this. Yeah. And maybe not to look at people through such a negative, you're impacting my day. Like, how dare you, you know, Mm -hmm. just really almost honestly have more grace than you did before. And I'm, I'm thinking M about the, um, the significance of that moment of you being present and conscious and gracious. You know, we have been having this discussion, this like meta discussion about like, why am I even here and what's the purpose and the monotony of life. And that was a moment that every parent has experienced, will experience a teenager having a a tantrum and embarrassing you in public and, and whatever. But that was a particular moment that your life intersected with another mom's life. And you were able to make a value add to her. Um, You were able to shift a trajectory there just by being present and being kind. And I mean, if it, if it's not about, if the little things don't matter, then the big big things, you know, don't, don't matter. And I'm, I'm I'm thinking about your friend who kind of started us on this conversation and maybe to bring this to some sort of a conclusion, I know he is the kind of person who is that kind of person in his life. I know he is someone who is endlessly gracious, who thinks of others all the time, who is the first to um, reach out in compassion, who is, um, because of his own life experiences, he has an eye out for people who are down and who are experiencing the kind of things that he experiences. 
the hard thing about that is you don't, when you live that way, you don't always get to see the ripple effect of it. But I have a feeling that if your friend could sit down and close his eyes and just if a movie played in front of him of all of those moments of kindness, all of those acts of grace and compassion that are just so natural for him to a stranger, to a friend, to a loved one. Um, if he could see the the ripple impact of all of those small acts of love and kindness and how they have shifted people's day, week, month, life, I think that he would probably feel a sense of deep purpose in, in living. From his vantage point and what he can know, it feels monotonous. But we're billions of us humans that are bumping up against each other like atoms and and we don't know you know how all of this energy is transferring and what the effects of it may be but i know that he is generally a force of kindness and goodness in this world and i'm glad he's here and i'm glad he's in it and and i hope that he will feel um the weight of the kind of person that he is and that the world's better because he's he's in it yeah and I want to end on, um, if he if he ends up listening to this, I want him to know, even, I mean, I just got this sense of, um, what's it all for? Uh, will people remember me? And I want him to know, uh, he's impacted me so much. And I'm so thankful for who he is in my life. And like you said, well, going off of what you said with that, like if he were to close his eyes, I know that he has impacted a lot of people's lives. And if I haven't conveyed that enough to him, I am sorry because he deserves to know that the world is the world is better because he's in it. Well, let me take us in a little bit of a, of a different direction. We did have a question that was sent in to us and it's, it's, um, less about an experience or a thought. And it's more about someone wanting to hear your thoughts, my thoughts on a particular idea. And so, um, this is a question from my friend, Tim. He has been contemplating, uh, this, um, kind of Western default to intellectualism you know, this, this idea that we can rationalize and intellectualize everything and kind of, uh, logic our way, uh, to understanding the world. And he shared the question, um, do you think part of the challenge is that we overemphasize our ability to grasp reality with our intellects and underemphasize our ability to intuit what's real? So he, he was just, um, contemplating, the Kohelet and Ecclesiastes and saying, you know, how tiresome much learning is. He's feeling that right now. And then he was listening to our conversation and, and seeing how, you know, as you're trying to make sense of this, you know, what happens after we die, your rationale is taking you to nothing. Like there's no logical proof that anything happens after we die, except for we cease to exist. What, what is the value of intellect versus intuition? when we're talking about these kinds of things, like these existential questions, like what happens to us when we die? What do you think about that? 
Well, first off, Tim, I'm going to be very honest with you. If you're listening to this, I don't know if you watch The Office, but the first thing I said to Erica when I read that question was, explain it to me like I'm five. Okay. So he does watch The Office and he will be listening to this podcast. So thank you for such a into like an intellectual, intellectual question. question. Okay. Thank you. But um, as I've been reflecting on his question, because I had to chew on that one, I really did. Um, I guess for me, logic and rationale was thrown out the window for such a long time in my life. I just, I believed it as so because God told me to. I mean, like how I was being taught. I mean, I have been punched in the stomach by a very famous, well, you know, I don't know. They're not famous in like real world, but like in the Christian realm. And like, she's literally was punched in the stomach. She, this is not a metaphor. Yes. I was literally punched in the stomach. You know, my hands are raised. I'm crying. I'm asking God to give me the gifts of the spirit. The, um, more so tongues. Cause that just seems to be such a emphasis to get into heaven. But I let that happen and I had been groomed or told that things like that happen in Pentecost. And, um, I was told, and I don't know the person's name anymore, but like someone grabbed, and I think it's actually the Pentecost that went on in California. Oh, you're talking about, um, uh, you're talking about revivals, like the Azusa's. Uh, revival. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I read several books on that and there was a, and it was actually in the paper. Okay. Like in America at whatever time, because it's been years since I studied this, this man was supposedly picked up out of his casket dead. Okay. And thrown out a wall. And there was a whole message on that. Okay. And I just, I just was like, cool. Like, Mm. Um, I think they said he came back to life or something. He was thrown against this wall multiple times until he did come back to life, something of this nature. And, and I, I just believed what people told me as fact Mm. as, well, why would they lie to me? Well, why would they exaggerate? You know, uh, God can, God can, he will, if you believe it, it'll happen. So um, that's the lens I've always looked at it through. And then I can vividly remember sitting in a bathtub and just crying for, I mean, just crying. And I, I didn't, depression wasn't like a buzzword yet. We weren't talking about mental illness yet. And I was just crying and crying and crying. And I remember feeling like, this is what depression is. And I texted, I had a group chat with my um, like youth group or like my college group. And there were two people that responded. I felt like they should, but the resound, the, the echo was, we'll pray for you. Mm. 
And I just, I remember thinking in that moment, like, this is a very real thing. Like, I don't want to be alive. I don't feel like I have purpose and I need you right now. I need someone. I wouldn't, I wouldn't message you this, uh, this, this terribly embarrassing thing that no one talked about then. Yeah. If I didn't need a brother or sister to help pull me out or just be there. Yeah. And I, there just started to be cracks after that for me of like, this doesn't make any sense. Why am I beating my head against a wall? And then now I'm going to these revivals and things and I'm like, nothing's actually happening. It's just a bunch of people yelling and, and I'm starting to see it in this like practical sense. And I'm like, well, that kind of looks like literal physical abuse. And that kind of looks like manipulation. And, and I was fighting it. I was fighting it. I was thinking that the devil was really getting to me and that, um, the verse, like my heart was being hardened mm. and I was just, I was terrified yeah. that my, um, uh, maybe that my intuition and my, and my rationale were at war with each other. Um, because the funny thing is, is I have been told many times and I, I don't know, um, that I have the gift of discernment and that I am a very intuitive person. And, um, so when I felt like my intuition kind of failed me when I was honestly just derailed, um, by this, by this church. And it was, I feel like a collective uh, effort. Um, and I came out on the other, other side, it just kind of felt like I needed to let myself rationalize the things that happened to me because they were bad. So I let people get away away with a lot in the name of Jesus Christ. And I think that happens a lot, obviously. And we see that a lot in cults, right? So, but like I had said to you, when you posed this question to me, um, I don't, is, is it a complete Western world world view? Like, do, I don't, I don't know how other countries, and I mean, their cultures date back to Jesus, right? Like we're only, we've only been in this country for a minute compared to them. So is it just like, let it be so, and they just grow up and that is a fact. And they, and I see, I see, um, I watch like 90 day fiance and things like that. And I'll see like in the Tunisian culture, it is, it's very much, it's a, it's ritualistic and they may live life like me. And I mean, like they're okay with drinking or they, they don't go to church, but they go to the services that they need to a couple times a year. And, but they believe they do, they're devout. So I, I don't, but that's all I really know of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if it's just my, I mean, I would guess it is my Western worldview, but I also think it's a lot of, again, I didn't have the internet at my fingertips when I was going to this church. And the more that I've been able to study, it's been a blessing and a curse. It feels, it feels like the more I've studied, the more I've come away. And I want, I've always had the open mind of, I want to go back. I want to end up there. Yeah. I do. Um, and there's this feeling of like, why wouldn't philosophy match up with Jesus? Why wouldn't science match up with the Bible? 
why wouldn't history align with this entity that supposedly rules over it? Um, so, I mean, it's hard. I, I, it's, it's difficult. I have the same issue when it comes to ghosts or basically a lot of things that you can feel but don't see. Um, and I don't know if this would mean anything to anyone listening, but like something I've always wrestled with is a Manchester orchestra, um, comes from Manchester orchestra song. Like if seeing is believing, then believe that we have lost our eyes. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't know. Yeah. Let me, let me see if I can peel back some layers of what I heard in your response. M. because even when we were texting about this question, I was, I was really interested in how differently you even interpreted yeah. the question than I did. I could tell, which is, I, I'm so curious about and why I love these kinds of conversations because we all come to dialogue with preloaded assumptions and definitions and our worldviews and our, you know, culture shapes that and our subcultures. And so, um, you know, what I'm hearing you say is you were, you were feeling attention as you reflect back on your life when you were, um, when you had bought into the Christian faith that, you know, we grew up in. And, um, and as you were having these experiences that started to, like you said, expose some cracks and, you know, breakdowns, you felt this tension between your intuition and, you know, what you felt or what, what you thought you knew, but then rationally like two and two weren't equaling four. And, Mm -hmm. and that was, you know, kind of the beginning of the end for you. And, um, and so then on top of that, you only know the, the culture that you've been in. And so it's kind of like the, the fish doesn't see the water it's swimming in. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, and so what even is intuition? What even is, you know, intellect? And and then I also heard you say, I needed intellect because I was traumatized. And the only way that I was going to be able to process that and like move forward in my life was to separate what had been done to me and uh, so that I could observe it and analyze it and figure out what was, you know, what that was. And I do think that that is a really useful tool of intellectualization. Um, Things that happen to us feel so mixed up and connected and intertwined inside of inside of us. And, and this is a strategy I have used in my life too, where if we can separate me from what was done to me, then we can then look, look at this thing more objectively and it doesn't feel, then we can do it without the shame and we can do it without all of that heavy stuff. And so I don't, I'm, I know Tim pretty well, and I don't think that that's actually what he was um, getting at. Um, and, and I also would say that, you know, when I think about in- intuition, my experience of how we were taught about intuition from a Christian perspective was that intuition was bad and we can't trust our gut. We can't trust our intuition. Um, yeah. Intuition was more like the devil speaking yeah, to you. Yeah. So like in your experience, when I, what I think your intuition, how I would think about these frames and these words is your intuition was what was telling you this whole time of like ask this question or that's, that doesn't make sense. Talk to the youth pastor about that or talk to the pastor about that. I think your intuition was that thing that was always saying something's amiss here. Something's fishy. Something's not adding up. And I do believe that bad religion teaches us to distrust our intuition, to disembody, to disassociate, to compartmentalize. And I think that's, you know, that's one way that I have learned to think about my own journey. And that kind of a spirituality, which was a very compartmentalized, disassociated, disembodied way of thinking about faith and spirituality. Um, so I see your intuition as being like your your guide and the thing that was trying to keep you safe and trying to rescue you out of that really bad, um, toxic situation that you were in. And finally, it did. You know, finally, yeah. what I heard <laughs> you describing was not your intuition and your rationale butting heads, but actually when those two finally got to come into alignment together is when you had your permission to leave a really unhealthy spirituality that I'm glad that you left. Um, Mm -hmm. so for, for, for what it's worth, I mean, I wasn't there and I'm not you, but the way that my definitions function, that's kind of, you know, how, how I would think about it. What I think Tim's question did for me was, um, was pinpoint uh, when we talk about like Western, Western intellectual, uh, like intellectualization, it's, I think it's coming from a historic perspective of, of like the enlightenment. So there was, you know, a way that human humanity functioned up into the point, that point. And then people look back at that moment in time as like shifting the trajectory of at least like the Western world where the scientific method was developed. And we began to say, okay, we can actually run uh, our our experience of the world through these criteria and come up with hypotheses and then test them and see what is really true and what is not true. And that has been so, I mean, modern medicine. I mean, there are so many positive outcomes of that way of thinking. 
Whereas the Eastern world, not that the Eastern world doesn't use those kinds of things, but that's not the the center of the way of thinking about reality. And so, and you even see that in like Eastern religions, um, Buddhism is not this like rigorous, systematic, um, you know, like way of approaching spirituality. Whereas our experience of Christianity is that way. What's the truth? What's the right thing that I have to believe? Mm -hmm. What's the right thing that I have to say? And here, these are the the possibilities and it's either this or that it's black, it's white, it's dualistic. And, um, I think what I heard Tim saying in his question was clearly there are some things that can be known through rationale and intellect, things that can't be known just by intuition might be felt or might be sensed, but can't be proven. Mm -hmm. So yes, of course we want to use our intellect to its, to the greatest degree that we possibly can. But when it comes to something like what happens after we die, something that none of us actually can test, you know, we can't hypothesize and then test and then, you know, come up with um, data to support. We can't peer review anybody's ideas about what happens after we die. I think his question was more like, is part of it that we're trying to intellectualize something that we actually don't have any data on? And is this a place where we might give ourselves a little bit more permission to say, well, I have a gut feeling that there's something more. So you know what? I'm going to trust that there's something more. Is that enough? Is it not? Does that feel too much like that? God said it. I believe it. That settles it to you. Even if God's not even in the picture, we're not even talking about God or we're not even assuming God exists, but like, I just have this feeling that there's got to be more than this. Is that enough? Well, I mean, that's just a summary of my problem. (laughs) because up until we're going on two years, right. Up until a couple of years ago, that was enough. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, and I, it wasn't from a spiritual point of view. It wasn't from like an agnostic point of view or, you know what I mean? There was no agenda behind it. It was just, yeah, that was enough. And, and then all of a sudden it wasn't, Mm. and that's where I'm scared. That's where I'm at. So, um, and actually that's where I'm like looking at all of you and being like, why aren't you freaking out about this? Like the sky is falling. The sky is falling. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm chicken little over here. Like, are you guys not paying attention? Um, so that's where I'm like, how do I get back to that? I don't think I can. Mm. I wish that I could, I hope, or I hope that there's some, I have some experiential things come that show me, or at least give me some uh, hope on the matter, some resolve, but yeah, that's, that's the summary of my problem. Yeah. So um, maybe to wrap up this portion and what I'm hearing you say is Uh, yeah, I haven't like, I'm not this person who has this rigorous need to have some like data set that proves this is what happened. I don't want to be Stephen Hawking. I don't, I don't sit there and go along. Um, what's his name? Richard. There's a lot of atheists out there and I'm just like, I don't, I don't want to fall down that. Not going there. Uh Right. Right. Yeah. 
But at the same time, um, you're saying, but it's not enough just to say like, I think there's something more and that's, and that satisfies me. So you're, you're at a moment in your life where you're looking for at least something that's coherent or some, some kind of experience that would point you in a direction to say, I don't have to know all for certain, but I would like to have a worldview that has something vaguely, um, yeah, give me an inkling. Give me a nugget. Gotcha. And and I think, you know, I think that's a great answer because knowing knowing Tim, Tim will say that he is someone who has just lived so much in his head that his journey that he's on right now is figuring out like what does it really mean to experience reality? What does it really mean, you know, as he is a person who follows Jesus? What does it really mean to experience Jesus? Um, instead of just saying like, I think about it all the time. Therefore, you know, is that it? Like, is that all that a faith or a spirituality has to offer us is something to think about or a set of doctrines to say that we believe? Um, but what does it actually look like to live from our gut and to be more embodied and to have a spirituality that is practiced and experiential rather than just intellectual? For sure. I, um, yeah, I mean, to end on a funny note for me, Tim, let's just like live in a simula- simulation together because uh, I live in my head too, and it's too much. <laughs> I, def- I definitely get where he's coming from, though, um, especially when he's, and I think it's courageous, honestly, to try and explore such hard questions from, from a biblical point of view or just a Christian's point of view. I think I think it's courageous. I really do. Thank you. It's really tough questions to sit with. It is. And um, to look at it through that lens and just really try to find the answer. Um, even if it's just an answer that you need, you know, not so much what someone else might see. I think, I think that's really courageous. And I mean that in a very, I mean, I'm coming from like, I'm, I'm very serious. I think that's really cool. And, um, I understand how hard it is because that was me for a while and maybe it'll be me again. You know, you, when you were describing the mask that you had gotten used to wearing, like the physical mask of COVID, but then that almost became a metaphor of like, I don't have to be anyone. Like I'm this anonymous person, um, out in the world doing what I need to do. I think that intellectualism in American Christianity has functioned the same way. So you can have a person that has not been transformed by their faith in any way. Their life looks exactly like any other person who doesn't believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And yet they have this mask of intellectualism where they can talk to you for five hours about the Bible says this or God believe, you know, I blah, yes. blah, blah. Um, but really when you're like, okay, so how is your life better because you follow Jesus? Or like, how is your, how are you different from your next door neighbor because you follow Jesus? What if someone looked at your life, would they want, would they want their life to look like yours? Um, I think the majority of Christians really wouldn't have a satisfying answer to that. And, but they can say all these things about, mm-hmm. um, for, in this like very intellectual way. And I'm, you know, I just find that so unsatisfying. And I think, you know, Tim's, you know, coming in that place or has been in that place or coming to that place. And, you know, I would just say for those of you who are like Jesus followers, or you're interested in Jesus, we literally believe that God became a human. Like he, he became a human. Um, and 
lived as a human and had this human experience, had a body. There's nothing wrong with being a material. There's nothing wrong with being flesh. There's nothing inherently bad about that. We, the goal is not, I believe to leave this fleshly body to become some disembodied spirit someday, but that, you know, Jesus prayed that the kingdom of God would come and God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the thing that compels me about Jesus is not that I don't have to go to hell when I die, but that there's a way to live on earth in our bodies as real people that is better than the way that I thought. And that's what I'm going after. Hmm. It's an embodied, I think Christianity, like the, the Jesus was Jewish. So Jesus wasn't a Christian. So let's just say that. But <laughs> I think the teaching that Jesus gave was not about like intellectualized spiritualism, but it was about like living on earth right here, right now in under the reign of God and what God was like. And it, this is not really super consistent with a hyper-intellectualized uh, worldview. And uh, Jesus was Middle Eastern. He wasn't Western. So if if our understanding of what Jesus teaches is like more compatible compatible with like post enlightenment Western thinking than it is with like ancient Middle Eastern thinking during the Roman Empire, <laughs> um, we have probably misinterpreted a lot of of what Jesus had to say. Hundred percent. If we're gonna. I don't think we can politicize it. And that's what it, what it has become. At least I feel like in the Western world. Mm, What do you mean when you say that? The way that the Bible has changed in America in the last hundred years to fit things that literally enslaved people, um, prohibited prohibited people, um, helped create laws that, um, what's oppressed people. Yeah. That oppressed people. Thank you. Um, that's, that's what the Bible is now. And you know, I always think about Jesus in the market, you know, just kind of being sick of it, <laughs> you know, sick of what, it, what, what he was seeing, uh, as his culture and for us to use the Bible in such a political manner. Um, I just think it's so wild. I think it's so wild mm. because it's weird that you know, like in the thirties through like maybe even the seventies, I want to maybe at least the late sixties, we said that it was wrong to have interracial marriages. Uh, we use the Bible to pacify, um, plantation owners, you know, enslaving people, um, because there were slaves in the Bible, like, you know, um, in, in women's servitude, the, the, just a complete misinterpretation of, what a woman is, um, a lot of suppression has come in the country that I live in because of that book and how it was interpreted by those that are in power here. Mm. Yeah. So I want to, I want to provide one small 
not a, it's not a counter, um, but it is, I, I just want to offer one thing. And then we do have one more question, but I think we don't have enough time in this week's episode to really give it the, um, the space that I really believe that it deserves. So I think we're going to wrap up this week's episode with this conversation here. And then, um, and if it's okay with you, we can, we can have one more episode where we just take on that one last question and really dedicate some, some energy and some thought to that response. Does that sound okay? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay. So I, the only thing that I wanted to add to your reflection just there was that I think that the message message of Jesus was deeply political and politicized. And I think that's why Jesus was murdered um, through the collusion of the religious institution and the Roman government. Um, but I think it was political in a way that it wouldn't, it's not useful to um to our current cultural moment. Well, and that's actually what I mean. I I know what he was doing at the time. Mm. I'm saying the way that it, he, like he didn't, he did not say these weird things that like we use Mm. back today, like a pledge that has to have his name in it. You know, that we have to put the 10 commandments in every like court in like, we had to put our, put our hand on a Bible for an oath, like, and then literally like all those hot topics of LGBTQ, trans, um, marriage, like that they have to be so intertwined when he never said himself a thing about it. Mm. But we, but we have said it. And so let it be. So that's what I mean. I feel like America is like America's the Pharisees. Okay. And those that actually try are due, at least I think, um, um, believe and act in in true Jesus form, I guess. Uh, They're not that popular. Yeah. And Jesus wasn't popular. (laughs) So to make him that blonde hair, blue eyed guy and, you know, but still hate immigrants and things when he was an immigrant himself, things of that nature. I'm saying like the way it's been politicized in America, um, like you were saying in terms of looking at it through our lens versus like the time period, it's just wild to me. And I don't think it, well, it doesn't match up. It's just been completely missed. It's just been torn apart and made into what we need to suppress people. Yeah. That's what I meant. I, I know at the time it was a political almost overthrow. I mean, like people were like, you're on this side or you're on that side. But in America, the way that it's been used as a tool to, it's been to suppress people. Um, I, I don't think that's what it was intended for. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And I, I'm not exactly sure how we got to that from Tim's question. But I'm glad we did because I, I <laughs> as you know, I mean, like this podcast is about that, like being a responsive dialogue centered place where, you know, for us uh, here in the Holy District, we do follow Jesus. And so we, we try to keep on getting back to Jesus and peeling back those layers of who we were told Jesus was and what we were told Jesus wants and what, what Jesus represents, but then really going back and actually 
looking at the gospels and saying, okay, well, what did Jesus really do? And what did Jesus really teach? And how did Jesus really live? And why did Jesus die? And why did he die the way that he died? And, you know, all of those things, instead of it being this abstracted, um, you were destined to hell because God hated you. So Jesus took your punishment and now you are, owe everything to God. Um, and you should just be lucky that you're not, you know, that you were one of the chosen or whatever. Um, when, when you actually read the gospels, especially like Matthew and Luke, and you see what Jesus taught and you see what he, how he lived, he wasn't talking about how to get from heaven to some other or from earth to some like disembodied state. He was talking about what that he, he was saying he was inaugurating the kingdom of God on earth. And he was inviting everyone to come under the, the, his Lordship as the suffering servant who, um, who had, who came to rescue the world and not to condemn it and to teach us how to live in the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world. And so, um, the fact that that has been twisted to oppress and, um, harm is, is a travesty that we have to call out and keep calling out and keep working against. And I'm really grateful that you see that with such clarity and that you, you know, you brought that, you know, brought that up in our podcast today. Yeah. There's so much, um, that I can delve into on that subject. So, yeah, I'm telling you, we're going to have about 18 spinoff podcast series just starting. Right. This. <laughs> All right. And with our last minute, um, anything that you want to say in closing for, for this Q and R episode? I just hope, um, that these questions, even if they were unanswered and just more our opinions and feelings. Um, I hope that the listeners and those that ask those questions know that I completely validate them. And, and I mean, it matters, it matters. And, um, I think it helps to, um, help me close that gap of not want, I'm sorry, of, I don't even know if we close that gap of allowing vulnerability back into my life and trying to nurture the relationships that I do have. And then also to create new ones. Mm. I love that. Awesome. Thanks sis. So that's where we will leave it for today's episode. As promised, we have one more big question that we're going to take on in our final episode of our Eternal Oblivion podcast. So be sure to tune into that. And I just wanted to say one more time, thanks for being a part of this. Thanks for sharing your insight. Thanks for walking through this conversation with Emily and I. We have so loved it and we're looking forward to doing it one more time before we wrap this series. I jokingly said we might have about 18 spinoff uh, podcast series after this conversation, but I really do mean it. If there's something that Emily and I alluded to or touched on or didn't quite cover a different topic that came up that we didn't get to kind of dive into that you would like to hear Emily and I chat through, send me an email and let me know. We can definitely work something out. E-R-I-C-K-A at holydistrict.org. Let me know what you're thinking and we'll see what we can do. 
Otherwise, you know the spiel. If you've been listening for the last few episodes, we would love to connect with you on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Rediscover Sacred. You can jump on the webs- our website at holydistrict.org, find out more about what we're doing, where we're gathering, and how what we're up to in the Holy District might intersect with you and your life's purpose. We are so happy that you've been on this journey with us and looking forward to taking next steps together. The Holy District is a growing network of people in the United States who are finding creative ways to live integrated, Jesus-centered lives in their communities, with their communities, and for their communities. We're dedicated to rediscovering the sacred in the everyday spaces where we already live, work, and play, and we're so glad you're on this journey with us. Talk to you next time.